0: Welcome to Charter School Conversations, a weekly podcast for the Utah Charter School community. I'm your host, Gina James, with the Utah Association of Public Charter Schools. We'll do a little board training, have conversations with charter school leaders, and touch on issues that affect us all. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Today, I'm joined with Royce Van Tassel, who is the Executive Director of the Utah Association of Public Charter Schools. Hi, Royce. How are you? I am so glad to be here. A little bit nervous, but pretty excited. All right. Well, we are going to be talking about something that you love, so you don't have to be nervous about it. Fingers crossed. (laughs) So today, we are touching on the history of Utah charter schools. I think it's really valuable as a charter school community to kind of know where we got our start and why it's important to know that and how it can help us moving forward. So... Why are there charter schools in Utah? Where did this start?
1: (laughs) People for a very long time have wanted more options to tailor their uh, their children's education to the needs of their child. Too often, lots of parents feel like, and we feel this still today sometimes, that you're just one voice in a big machine and and nobody listens to you. And uh, charter schools came along out of that desire for parents, and family to be active participants and wanting to be partners in their children's education. In 1998, then-Senator Howard Stevenson and Representative Brian Allen um, brought this idea. It had first been championed. uh, The first charter law passed in Minnesota in 1993. And you saw a smattering of other charter laws that had popped up over the succeeding few years. But in 1998, uh, Senator Stevenson, Representative Allen, championed that. And it was really just a pilot program. It was, let's see if this is possible. Let's see if it can work. And they said, we're going to get eight schools to start and we'll get those uh, up and running and see if we can make that work. And, you know, today, Obviously, it's grown to be as large as more or less any district in the state. We have some 80,000 kids. We have 135 different campuses. We've got thousands of people who currently serve on boards, or our teachers have served on boards, people who didn't realize how much they had to give to their kids' education, to their grandchildren's education, And, and we've really begun to say... There is a way for a teacher, a parent, and an administrator, a director to be partners. And let's all pull together for that child's education instead of pointing
0: fingers, as has happened too often in the past. What's the difference? I mean, what makes charters so different? And why did there need to be a law passed to allow charter schools?
1: Well, you know, we have uh, the state carved up into 41 separate school districts. Actually, at the time, it was probably 40, the... The 41st school district, Canyons, came about, what, 10, 12, maybe even 15 years ago. And for those of you with a memory long enough to remember, that was a huge political fight. It was people that lived in a part of the what was then all the Jordan school district saying, we don't feel like our voices are being heard in our children's education. And so that same sentiment of we want to be partners in our education, and our voices aren't being heard. People aren't listening to us. And they said, fine, if you don't want to listen to us, we're going to create a new school district. And, and charter schools come out of that same impetus. So we had to create a mechanism for people with a cool new idea, and frankly, uh, the joke, which is far too real, that they're willing to swim up a waterfall because that's kind of what it takes to open a (laughs) charter school. It's a bit of work. (laughs) It is a bit of work and it should be a bit of work. I mean, education is hard. We have obligations. We need to follow those obligations. There are a lot of rules, probably more than we need, but nonetheless, we have to create a way so that people who have an interesting, innovative new idea can come and start a charter school and say, I think this is going to work. After those eight schools, which um, a year later really became 16, those schools sort of go along for a little while and no one quite knows where this is going to go. You've got this weird relationship between people who want to see more choice and the State Board of Education, which really doesn't want to see additional charter schools at that time. Uh, The school districts could say, yes, you can open a charter school in my neighborhood But frankly, why would they? And very rarely did they, almost never. And you had a state board of education that said, we don't like this at all. At the same time, in the Alpine School District, this is the early 2000s, um, the Alpine School District adopts uh, a new math curriculum that is not at all popular with the folks in the area. And they say, we're going to do this. And the parents said, we don't want you to. And they said, we're going to do this. And parents said, we don't want you to. And they said, well, we're still going to do it. And they said, fine. We've heard about this cool thing called charter schools. We're going to go open a bunch of charter schools. And that's what you saw. Timpanogos Academy up in Linden became one of the first charter schools to open. And it's directly a response to people saying, I want something different. I want a math program that I, as a parent, understand that my children are going to succeed in. And so if you sort of look uh, on the map uh, where those charter schools are and when they opened up, it's because parents were looking for something that they couldn't find elsewhere. And they said, I can open a charter school. And we have, I don't know, there's probably a dozen, 15 charter schools in that um, Alpine school district that opened and said, we don't like what they're offering. And at the time, it was a very controversial move. Today, the relationships between districts and charter schools are at an all-time high. People trust each other. They go back and forth. We have opportunities to learn from each other. But it's, it's been quite a journey. There was overt hostility
0: 20 years ago. So what did that look like when the parents were getting together? What kind of um, system was set up for them to be able to start a charter? Like, where did they even begin at that point?
1: Well, you would put together an application and take it to the State Board of Education um, I guess you probably had to go to the school district, which was more a matter of um, going through the motions because the school district wasn't going to say yes. Uh, but when they said no, you would take that application up to the State Board of Education and, and probably uh, the least known, uh, but one of the most important stories in here uh, in, from this time period is a, an application for a school that at the time was going to be called Ravenwood. Uh, today, we know it as Da Vinci Academy. They, they put together a great application, sent it over to the state board. And the state board said, you know what? This is a really good application. We think that this could be a really good school. I mean, we hate charter schools, so we're not going to approve that. But this is actually not a bad idea. And the legislature heard that and they said, this is nonsense. We actually think that parents should be partners in our children's education. And so if you, state board... Are going to just be hostile? Then we're going to create a new entity. They called it the State Charter School Board. It was the brainchild of the late Representative Marta Dilry. Her granddaughter had struggled in one of the district schools, went to one of the few charter schools that existed at the time, and she said, "Wow, this is magic. It's done just some great things for my granddaughter." And the state board is reacting like this. This is nonsense. And so she created the State Charter School Board. There were a bunch of us that that worked on that. And at that same time, you saw just this tremendous growth in the number of children in Utah public schools. Over the next 10 years, we saw an increase of some 50% in the, just the total number of children in Utah schools. And over that time period, half of those kids end up in charter schools. We went from I don't know, 15, 18, maybe 20 schools to a hundred schools in 10 years. It was just this incredible flowering of creativity and, and opportunity and people saying, I can be partners. I want to help my kids' education. And I think that my neighbors
0: and their friends want to learn and help
1: too. And let's
0: see what we can do. What were the primary challenges that you were facing beyond just the fighting from school districts?
1: Well, one of the big challenges you faced was getting a building. I mean, there are times when uh, I remember, uh, sadly, when August would roll around to be time for school to open and the papers would be full of stories, pictures with unfinished buildings, and all you see are studs. And where are these kids going to school? There would be other schools. One of them would open up in a bowling alley. Because you just have to find a facility, and this is all very new, and how do we pay for all of this? And there are questions about, because charter schools don't have a boundary. Their boundary is, frankly, the state, and how far are people willing to drive? And so you can't impose a property tax, but everybody that's been involved in education finance knows that, I don't know, 40% of Uh, the funding for uh, public schools comes out of the property tax. And so how do we fix that? How do we help charter schools? And that was a long, drawn-out process. Frankly, it lasted, I mean, there are elements of it that still get uh, worried about today. But um, we finally solved that problem roughly 2016. Again, shockingly, Senator (laughs) Stevenson is directly involved. Every meaningful piece uh, of legislation relative to charter schools in the last 20 years has been done by um, Senator Stephen. I mean, every is a slight exaggeration, but only a slight. <laughs> um, he has, was a, a champion of charter schools throughout his time in uh, the legislature. And so how do we pay for a building? How do we have a place for those two to go and even find a classroom? Those were huge challenges, ones that Utah, frankly, has solved better than just about anywhere else. As I talked to my colleagues around the country The challenge that they wonder about is where are we going to find a building? Does the district have an empty building that we can use? Can we force them to let us use that building? Is there something else? And so, um, yeah, that that was a real challenge. A lot of the uh, founders, a lot of the people that were early investors in charter schools, We're putting on vests and helping with the day-to-day as that school gets off the ground. That's certainly not what you expect uh, from the investor in any other property.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so would you say right now then that funding for charters and traditional district schools is fairly even? You know,
1: we've spent a lot of time um, on that. And I would say one can quibble around the edges. Um, We have never uh, offered funding for transportation or a separate stream of funding for transportation for charter schools. It's frankly a little bit of an open question in my mind, whether we want to, because it's not clear what obligations would come if we accepted those dollars. But outside that in the main, Utah is one of the only States in the country that has provided equitable funding as it relates to charters and districts.
0: I think that's something to be celebrated coming, you know, from just having charter schools for about 20 years now here. What were some of the benefits of setting up these charters? What have you seen over the last 20 years that have really made a difference in student lives? You know, I
1: went uh, a few years ago the week before school was opening at a charter school and uh they wanted to better understand what they as a faculty could do, what was the benefit for them. And I think in many ways, the biggest lesson is often the one that's easiest to overlook. In a district world, you're inevitably dealing with a collective bargaining agreement. And that collective bargaining agreement is almost as powerful as any state regulation. It dictates what your relationship between the teacher and the principal, between the principal and and the district is going to look like. And we've said we're not going to rely on that. We actually trust one another. There's going to be some messiness without all of these strictures, but there's also some flexibility and some freedom, some opportunities to structure things in ways that we wouldn't if we had to work with a collective bargaining agreement. You know, there is turnover. In uh, charter schools. And that means that we don't have to suffer under the dance of the lemons that is all too prevalent throughout the nation in district schools, where that collective bargaining agreement makes it almost impossible at times to get rid of a teacher who isn't performing well or who isn't behaving properly. And so we like that kind of flexibility. The same thing ends up being true uh, of an administrator. If somebody's doing some stupid things, then we can move on and it's time to
0: clean house and we do that. So when initially setting up the law for charter schools, how did you determine what guidelines or what particular things, you know, you mentioned collective bargaining, what made that decision between, okay, this is going to apply to district schools or this is going to apply to charter schools? I mean, what are some of those differences that came out and the choices in having those either as, you know, extra regulations to our charter schools or just extra freedoms that they had.
1: Well, the thought process, I think, has always been that charter schools would operate as laboratories of innovation. And so we wanted to keep them as deregulated as possible so that we can say, wait, let's try this. It hasn't been possible before. Will it still work? Um, and so, uh, when, when representative Dillery ran her legislation, I remember sitting up in the office of legislative research and general counsel, and we would go through sections of the code and say, do we absolutely have to have this? Or can we say, no, you're not going to have to follow this. No, you're not going to have to follow this. And, 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 you know, on some level that wasn't nearly as broad as I would have liked. It would have, been much more liberating to say, you only have to follow these pieces rather than, no, we're going to exempt you from these. If there's one frustration that I see, well, I have, I, I think, several frustrations in the way charter schools have developed over time. But one of those is that we have, um, I think somewhat unwittingly, somewhat unintentionally said, let's claw back those regulations that we were hoping to avoid. Part of that are self-inflicted wounds. Somebody does something stupid. And so we assume that some pandemic is coming, um, that this is going to happen everywhere. And, and that's not true. But if you're a policymaker, I can understand why you worry that we need, shall we say, a fence at the top of the hill, Rather to to prevent somebody from rolling off it rather than um, cleaning up the mess when something happens, even once. So, I think that that's one of the challenges. Um, Instead of saying you are going to be uh, subject to everything except these things, if we had it to do over again, I think what we want to say is everything's out except for these things that have to be in, you know, special education's an obvious one. You would absolutely have to follow that. I mean, there are some pots of money that uh, the federal government provides and, and you can't at a state level say, no, those don't apply. Uh, and so Title I, uh, some of the special education funds, but we have a lot more flexibility available to us and we keep allowing ourselves to get tied down. We have some 60 Uh, separate line items in the minimum school program rather than four or five. um, If we could reduce that down and, and run those dollars in unrestricted ways so that our local LEAs, our local charter schools, our local school districts could meet the needs of their children, their teachers in their communities, rather than imposing a one size fits all, I think our jobs in education would all get easier. We would spend less time talking about reports and more time talking about the needs of this child in this classroom right now. Some of the original schools uh, included um, the Tuakon School uh, Center for the Arts um, became Tuakon High School. We have uh, the um, schools like Success Academy and Aims and New Aims and UCAS that have these direct affiliations with universities, and they they advertise themselves as very high performing schools. schools. You know, yeah. these are people. Uh, the kids that go there are going to be challenged, and everyone's allowed to apply, and everyone's allowed to go. This is what it's going to take, and and you're welcome to. And and people have a remarkable way of of winnowing and saying. I would rather have a more traditional high school experience than what I'm going to get there. I'm less interested in uh, a club on on robotics and more interested in a football team. That's great. Then go choose that school. If you want to do some uh some really rigorous academics and graduate high school, with an associate's degree and, you know, be done your college career two years later, one of those may be a different choice. But we've seen a lot of that um, happen. As I said, Timpanogos Academy was one of the originals. Uh, Ogden Preparatory Academy, I think, deserves a special place. It certainly has a special place in my heart. Um, There's an elementary school up there that for decades had been um, failing Uh, their children come from from, from communities that had not succeeded well in education historically, and their children kept going and that school kept churning out students that weren't prepared to succeed. And the folks behind Ogden Preparatory Academy said, you know what? Demographics are not destiny. We can, we hold ourselves out as educators to be able to overcome the challenges that our children bring. And they said, we're going to go and teach the exact same kids. We're going to build a mile away from them. We're going to invite all of those families to come and we're going to nail it. And, and Ogden preparatory Academy, I think is a shining star saying, look, look, We can do more. We have to expect more. And that's one of the things that all of us in public education, and I would argue, especially in charter land, need to do better. We need to raise the outcomes that we have. Instead of worrying about, uh, on a state level, how much milk or how much uh, wheat or sugar goes into our cupcakes, we need to worry about, does this cupcake taste good? Are our kids learning? Are they ready to succeed? Too much of everything in public education, including sadly in our charter land, is about worrying about these inputs and what we really want, what our parents want. The reason that everyone gets into education is so that kids will be ready to succeed in life. And that's what we need to be worrying about.
0: What else do we need to know to help us move forward in building a good charter school community and continuing with opening and expanding new and exciting and innovative charter schools?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the things that we need to see more of is people that want to serve on charter school boards, charter school board members serve a vital role. It usually takes 10, 15 hours a month. um, And you have to have a willingness to learn and to give as I said before, we've had tens of thousands of people get involved in charter schools. We need more people that are willing to serve on charter school boards. I get contacted on a frequent basis, probably at least a monthly basis from a school that is saying, hey, we need some help. We need some uh, some people willing to serve on boards, people that are willing to give of their time and talents. Uh, Utah loves to do that. And our hope is that we'll see more of that. I think one of the other things we need to do is look around the country and say, What are some of the things that are happening in Florida, in Arizona, in Ohio, in California, that maybe there are some lessons that we can learn? You know, at the charter school where I serve on a a board, I heard some stories about some great things that were happening at a school district in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And we went and investigated and said, you know what? They are facing the same problems that we are at our school Let's see if there's a way to implement those. Could we do exactly in our little charter school of 320 students what a school district with 20,000 students did? No, but there are opportunities for us to learn from them and for them to learn from us. And so we need to be looking um, at at what else has worked and how can we move the needle on uh, student
0: achievement. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, Royce. We really appreciate it and your wealth of information about where charter schools came from in Utah and hopefully where we're going.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening in today. The Utah Association of Public Charter Schools is a nonprofit organization that provides training, advocacy, and technical support to promote excellence in Utah's public charter schools. Learn more about us on our website at utacharters.org.